So, so far as we've been making our way through the book of Acts, we're, we're now in, in Acts chapter 3. We're going to be doing verses 11 through 26 this morning. But uh, how many of you things have been pretty exciting for the early church? Right? We've seen the birth of the early church on Pentecost, right? We've seen uh, the Holy Spirit fall on believers, and it's our first demonstration of the, of the, the gifts of the Spirit, right? The, 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 the gift of tongues fell on the entire congregation. We see what Jesus promised when he said they would receive power come to fruition. How many know that when Jesus says something, when God says something, it's as good as done? He said they would receive power, and they received power. And then we've seen Peter preach an amazing sermon on the gospel to those who were wondering what the heck was going on. How many know that when God moves and God does miracles, when God does amazing things, it draws people in to figure out what the heck is going on? You know, church, we, we, we serve a supernatural God, and I want to see more supernatural things happen here, see miracles of God happen here, see the gifts of the Spirit manifest here. Those things weren't just for the early church. We need that power today, amen? And I think when we start uh, stop telling God that what he can and can't do, and let's just let him do what he wants to do, believing that the supernatural can happen, I think that we're going to see, uh, one, we'll see miracles happen in our own congregation or people we're praying for or people that we know. But on top of that, it's gonna, other people are going to want to know what's going on and give us opportunities to share the gospel with them, amen? So as we start today, before Jesus left in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, you remember that Jesus commissioned the disciples to go and make disciples. And in Mark, we see the Great Commission again, but we get some more details when Jesus says these words. Mark 16, 17 through 18 says, And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. And as we're going to go through the book of Acts, we're going to see as the, as the, the apostles and, and, and even other disciples are preaching and ministering, you're going to see all of these signs and wonders happen in their ministry. Last week, we saw one of the first big miracles recorded, performed at the hands of the apostles after Jesus left. Right? A man who had been lame since birth has an amazing encounter with God. He sees Peter and John walking up. He's, he's lame from birth. They always put him on the steps at the gate called Beautiful. He's hoping to receive some financial support. Right? He's, he's basically, because he's been lame since birth, all he can do is beg. And he sees Peter and John approaching, and he expects that maybe they're going to give him some money. But what he gets instead is an encounter with God and the ability to walk because he believes in the name of Jesus. You see, so many people get hung up on money. But did you know that money is actually the easiest thing to get or to give? There are so many things more valuable than money. Your health, your relationships, love, hope, victory, security, and your time are just to name a few. You know, it's funny, the, the, the church is often accused of always wanting everybody's money. And my pastor used to say, I don't just want your money, I want everything. 
I want your house, your kids, your wife, your dogs, your car, your I want everything. I want you to dedicate your life to serving God. But the interesting thing is, is money is the easiest thing to give. It's a lot harder to give your time. Now, when we read all these stories of miracles happening and everything going on, I think that we all get excited or we stand in awe, at least to some extent. How many of you guys would like to see that stuff happening today? See, the problem is, is what most of us don't realize is that we have the same power that Peter and John had. Peter and John weren't super saints. I mean, we, the Bible has recorded all their fault, faults and flaws and failures as well. They were just like us. They just put their trust in Christ and let the Holy Spirit move through them. We have the same power that, and authority that Peter and John had. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not claiming we have the same type of authority. None of us are apostles re- receiving new revelation from God. We're not going to write our own books of the Bible, right? In other words, none of us are getting brand new revelations from God like the apostles did. For example, when we receive a word, a revelation from God, it has to be in alignment with God's word. If, you're, if your revelation from God is, is in opposition to God's word, you know, you don't get to say, oh, no, this is what God's telling me now. I'm going to overwrite what Paul said. I'm going to overwrite what Peter said. So when I say that we have authority and power, I'm, I'm not saying that we're operating in that same apostolic office that the original uh, 12 apostles and then Paul operated in. But the power that they operated in, and when I say the authority they operated in, I mean the authority to cast out demons, the authority to, to cast a mountain into the sea, the authority that Jesus gave. We, we have access to that same power today. It didn't stop with the 12 apostles and Paul. And as we go through the book of Acts, you're going to see that as well, because there are, you know, one of the greatest examples is, is Philip. Philip goes from helping serve widow's soup, and then we see him over time. He's, he's, he's in another city, and now he's doing signs, wonders, and miracles. But he wasn't one of the original Paul. He was just a regular disciple that said, you know what? I'm going to serve God how I am. I can. I'm going to serve soup. And then he was faithful, and then he sent him out to, to, to evangelize and reach other cities, and he's doing signs and wonders. And finally, you see him referred to as, as, as Philip the Evangelist. He wasn't one of the original 12 Yet he still operated with the same power and authority that the, the 12 apostles did. And that is available to us today. The problem is most of us don't want to believe it. We've decided what God can or can't do. There are so many people that get wrapped up in, in saying miracles aren't for today or, or we make excuses. Anybody ever made an excuse for God? I have. Trying to explain why somebody didn't get healed or why some miracle didn't happen. We begin making excuses instead of just trusting God's word. As disciples, we have access to the same Holy Spirit and his power that the early disciples did. And I think when we'll operate in faith, he will move through us and do incredible things. It's time for us to start believing that he'll do what he said he's going to do. The scripture said that I just read... In Mark 16, 17 through 18, the, last, uh, the first, the first uh, line in 17 says, And these signs will accompany those who believe. 
doesn't say these signs will accompany the apostles. It doesn't say these signs will accompany the just the, the first early, you know, the first hundred years of the early church. It says these signs will accompany those who believe. Do you believe? Amen. So why are these signs not accompanying us? We should see it more regularly. Miracles, signs, and wonders shouldn't be the the this amazing thing that happens occasionally. It should be the norm. Yes. Amen. Like I said, even in the book of Acts, we see these signs and wonders accompanying others rather than just the apostles. And all throughout history, godly men have operated in great power as the Holy Spirit moved through them. Church, I think one of the things we can learn as we study the early church in this book of Acts is that God is supernatural. That means that he does things that aren't considered natural by today's standards. They can't be explained by science. And it's something we should expect. We should expect the supernatural. We should believe that God is who he says he is and he'll do what he says he's going to do. And like I said, some are going to say, Pastor Wayne, miracles aren't for today. Or they're very rare. It's only when God has the whim that he wants to do them. But the problem is, is too many of us have let our experience define what the Word of God says instead of letting what the Word of God says define our experience. Amen? So let's get started as we come off the tail end of this miracle. Acts 3.11 says, While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. All right, so this, this beggar's just been healed, right? He is lame his entire life. Peter and John walks up and says, gold and money I don't have, but what I have I give to you. Rise up and walk in the name of Jesus. And he leaps to his feet. He's excited. He's running around praising God. And now the people see just what happened, and they all start running up on him. All the people, they're utterly astounded, and they ran together to them, and they're crowding around him. And, and we see that the, the beggar is now clinging to Peter and John. I wonder if he's concerned with what the people are going to do to him who are running towards him. Are they going to overwhelm him? Do they just want to see what happened? Are they going to, do they want to harm him? Do they, do, they, do they want to take away what he's just received? And you say, well, Pastor Wayne, that's ridiculous. Why would anybody think like that? But we see it time and time again in the scriptures. What about all the anger because Jesus healed somebody on the Sabbath? <clears throat> Instead of rejoicing that somebody was healed, they wanted to kill Jesus and kick out whoever got healed. What about the entire town that told Jesus to get out because he sent demons from a couple of, of possessed men into a herd of pigs, and then those pigs ran off and, and killed themselves? I never understood how this town found the lives of these pigs more valuable than the lives of these two men who had just been set free. You see, people can sometimes have some weird ideas about the values of someone's life or their health. I don't know if it's jealousy. I don't know if it's because when this stuff happens, it interferes with their existing worldview. I don't know what it is, but things get crazy. As we continue on in verse 12 through 13, it says, When Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, 
glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. So as the man clung to him, Peter begins to address the crowd. And he's like, why are you guys so astounded at what's happening? Why are you looking at us like we're something special? The crowd sees this miracle. They got some questions. They're running up on them. They're, they're, they're overwhelmed with what happened. They're astounded. Peter says, why do you look at us like, like it was us that did it? It's not because, you know, he says it's our own power, our own piety. Basically what he's saying is we're not some sort of super Jew that's pulling this stuff off. Why do you look like it's us? You see, Peter recognized that it wasn't him that did the work. It was God who had done it. And that's something I think we should think about when we start thinking and telling ourselves, well, only the apostles can do these miracles. Even Peter said it wasn't me. It was God working through him. Peter says that the power comes from God's servant, Jesus. Right? He says, look, it wasn't us, but the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, basically your God too, it was his servant, Jesus, that was glorified in this. It's amazing. When we see all this stuff, it always points back to Jesus. His power, his love, and we see an amazing miracle happen. But then Peter begins to point out their mistake. You see, instead of recognizing who Jesus was, the one that God had glorified, instead they delivered him over to Pilate. And even worse, when Pilate wanted to release him, it says, listen, you delivered him over and you denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. So they denied him. Even when Pilate's like, listen, I don't see any fault in this guy. There's nothing worthy of death. Let me give him, let me release him to you. And they, they even denied his release. Can you imagine the blow that these men had just received? Because, I mean, the, the, the miracles are starting to stack up. The evidence that God was with Jesus is starting to stack up. Right? So he's, he's, he's been risen from the dead, ran around for 40 days, showing himself to tons of people. There's all kinds of evidence that he's risen from the dead and that he's, that he's alive, he's still alive. And then now we see that miracles are being done in his name after he's ascended. And they, they're, they're like, Peter's like, this is, the, you know, God has, has vindicated him. This is, this, is, this is his servant. He rose him from the dead, proving him. And you guys sent him over to be killed. And when he tried to get released, you wouldn't even let that happen. This has got to be a, a pretty big blow that they've just received. The reason this guy is walking is because of the power and of the authority of the one whom you delivered over to the Romans to be killed. Peter's like, you guys messed up big time. And he, he doesn't just stop there. He starts just getting ready to drive the nail home. He says, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. And to this we are witnesses. He drives the nail home. First you demanded his death even when Pilate wanted to release him. But then you denied that release asking that a murderer be released instead of Jesus. Can you imagine that? Pilate's like, let me give you this guy. 
first Pilate's like, I don't see anything worthy of guilt. And they're like, no, crucify him. It's because it's one of our laws. And he says, well, how about I, I, I release one person to you every year? So how about I release Jesus? And they're like, no, release the murderer, uh, Barabbas. Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. And then Peter gets real pointed. You killed the author of life. It always amuses me how people claim that the Bible doesn't say Jesus is God. It just called him the author of life, the creator. John 1, 1 through 4 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of the world. In Jesus, all things were made. He's the author of life. How you come to any other conclusion when somebody says Jesus was the creator, but he wasn't God, I don't know how you get there. And, and all throughout Scripture does it indicate Jesus was, in fact, God, but also that he was, in fact, man. He was fully man and fully God. And then in addition from that, when they tried to kill him, which is funny, trying to kill the author of life, the Father raised him from the dead, vindicating all that he said or that he did. Amen? And the disciples were witnesses to this horrible atrocity. This wasn't done in secret. They were all witnesses. So the crowd couldn't say, oh, no, that wasn't us. Because Peter and John could say, we were there. We saw it. The disciples were witnesses to their guilt. Now notice in these last few verses, you saw the word you a lot. How often Peter says, you, pointing to Israel, you delivered him, you denied him, you killed him. Israel had a lot to answer for, amen? And in verse 16, it says, And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see now. And faith that is through Jesus has given, this, has given the man this perfect health, can you imagine? Not only could he walk, but he's in perfect health now. It's like a reset switch in his body. This guy went from lame from birth to perfect health. He says that it's faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So after he kind of gives them a little tongue lashing, Peter points back to the miracle that had everybody running to their side. He says, this miracle that you saw where this man who had been lame from birth, he's now in perfect health, and it was by the power of his name, by faith in his name, his being Jesus, amen. He says, the one whom you delivered over to the Romans, the one whom you rejected, the one whom you murdered is the one in whose name and in whose power has made this miracle happen right in front of your eyes. It's an amazing thing. And now I want to talk to you guys about something as we look at this. And, and we're going to be talking about healing probably a lot in the book of Acts because we see it a lot. But I want to address something that I'm still struggling with and still working through. You guys are going to get some inside baseball in my head that you usually only get to see on Wednesday nights. If you ever want to see how I work through stuff in Scripture, show up on a Wednesday night. If you don't believe me, ask the people that are there. You get to see how I, I work through stuff and try to understand Scripture to make sure that I have it right. 
But when we're talking about healing, and I've, I've preached messages on healing before. I've, I've got long series on healing. And I believe that we have access to healing by faith because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. The scripture says, by his stripes, we are healed. And yes, you can make a biblical case that that applies to physical healing as well as spiritual and national healing. And as you go through the scripture over and over and over, you're going to see that healing is the result of faith. Quite often, the faith of the one being healed. So there's this clear connection between faith and healing as you go through the New Testament. And then I will say as an aside, the gift of healing is often also mentioned in the Scripture. Now, the gift of healing, unfortunately, is not quite as well documented. It's, it's very hard to pin down exactly what it is or how it works other than it's one of the gifts of the Spirit. So when you're operating in the gift of healing, the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and, and, and the, that power, that gift, is going to induce healing in someone, and there, there might, might be some differences in the requirements as far as faith is concerned. But the reality is, is that uh, we don't have really all that many, if any, at least clear-cut examples of the gift of healing. I think there are some that you could make a case for, but I don't think there's any that are, that are you, know, you know, Paul doesn't go out and say, this is the gift of healing. You know, there's nothing that's super clear-cut. But in almost every instance of healing in the New Testament, it is explicitly stated that faith was the catalyst to receive that person's healing. It's either explicitly stated or where it's not explicitly stated, you can see uh, evidence that faith was exercised. In almost every case. And we're going to see that as we continue out through the, the study of the book of Acts. And even in this case, before we get to this part where, where Peter explicitly says it was faith in the name of Jesus. You say, why was this man healed? It was faith. It says it. There's no, uh, there's no way to get around it. That's what the scripture says. He says, faith that is through Jesus, his name, faith in his name has made this man strong. Faith that is through Jesus has made this man well. So what made this man well? His faith in Jesus. But we also see evidence of his faith as well, right? Because this man has been lame from birth. It's not like he's walked his whole life and a couple weeks ago he broke his leg and he couldn't walk. He has been lame from birth. He has never walked. As Pastor Joseph said, his muscles are probably atrophied. Like, not only has he never walked, there's no way he could walk, even if all of a sudden everything worked right, they would still be atrophied. But when, when Peter said, rise to your feet and walk, it says, so the man rose slowly and he, he tested his legs very carefully to make sure they were working. That's not what it says. It says he leapt to his feet. I think that's a demonstration of faith. It has to be. He believed that the miracle would take place because if I hadn't been able to walk my whole life and my legs were atrophied, I've been lame since birth, leaping to my feet is not the first thing that's on my mind unless I believed what was going to happen. So in that case, there's a demonstration of faith and then the scripture just explicitly states it. So that's what I mean that when you look at, at healing in the New Testament, you either see it explicitly stated that the person had faith or there's evidence of faith because of stuff like that. They, they leaped. He leaped to his feet. The problem that I've run into 
and, and I understand this to an extent, is that some people take offense at this idea that healing is tied to faith. And I understand why, because it means that we have to take some responsibility for how we receive God's promises. And I say God's promises because it's not just healing. It's every promise we have to receive by faith. It's interesting that most of us, at least Christians, don't have a problem with the idea that without faith, you will go to hell. But they get really upset if you say you won't receive a promise of God without faith. And if I'm being honest, this is hard for me too. I believe that this promise is clear and that we can receive faith by healing. I think that's what the scripture teaches us. We can go through it over and over and over. But I also recognize that some people don't get healed. Now, I think some people just need to be patient. Scripture says if you lay hands on the sick, they will recover, not that they will recover instantly. But there are cases where I and others have believed for healing, and it never came to fruition, even unto death. And I've gone to God with this because I don't understand. I, I read the Scripture, and this is what the Scripture says, yet it doesn't seem to play out in life like that all the time, and I don't understand why. I've asked God, why is, this, why is it this way? We have people that are sick now in the church that we've been praying for, we've been believing. And I know that I believe God can do it, and I know the people that are praying for him believe that God can do it, but it seems like there's no movement, and I don't understand because the Scripture seems clear to me in what it says. So on one hand, I'm never going to tell somebody that it's your fault when you don't get healed or it's somebody else's fault because I've known people that I know have great faith and we've not seen the results that we were expecting based on the word of God. But on the other hand, I can guarantee the fault doesn't lie with God. No, I don't know why some people don't get healed like I expect them to, according to the scriptures. So I'm going to continue to do the only thing I know how to do. I will continue to believe God's word, even when it doesn't play out how I expect it to. And I, will, I refuse to let my experience define what the word of God says. When the scripture says that, that we have healing by faith, by a stripes we're healed, I'm, I'm not going to let my experience in the world define that that means something else. I'm not going to make excuses for God or his word or why it's not going to happen. I can't do anything about that. All I can do is move forward and believe what God says. I'm going to continue to lay hands on the sick. I'm going to continue to anoint them with oil. And I'm going to continue to pray in the authority that Jesus has given me. And I hope you'll do the same with me. Amen. So continue on, verses 17 through 18. It says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. When you look at what the Jewish people and the rulers did to Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, 
it's easy, especially from a naturalistic point of view, to say, good riddance, you're going to get what you deserve. But you notice that's not what we hear from Peter. We begin to see a message of repentance and forgiveness. It always amuses me when people get a phone call, they think that's a real wall and we can't hear them. (laughs) (laughs) We see a message of forgiveness and repentance being preached from, from Peter. We see Peter seeing these people like God does, loving them, offering them grace and mercy. And he says, listen, I know, brothers, and now I know, brothers, that you acted in ignorance. Also the rulers. He's including the the religious rulers. He says, listen, I know you all acted in ignorance. Actually, your actions are actually the fulfillment of what God foretold through the mouths of the prophets. God foretold that Jesus would suffer, and so he did. Now, one of the things I think we can get wrong if we're not careful is believing that God made these people do what they did. The reality is, is that people have free will. They get to choose what they want to do. But what we can think is, well, God, God foretold this, so that means that God made these people sacrifice Jesus. God, God overruled their free will, and they didn't have a choice in the matter. However, God can foretell what will happen without causing it to happen. For instance, I can foretell you right now that the sun will rise tomorrow. I'm not going to make the sun rise tomorrow. I just know it will, amen? And God is not limited by time, so he's able to tell his people through the mouth of the prophets what will happen. God understands what will happen. He, he knew what would happen when he sent his son. So he was able to foretell that his son would suffer, that he would die. And God used that to make sure that he paid the price for our sins and we could be forgiven. The reality is this ability is great evidence for God. And it's, and it's evidence for the reality that God is omnipotent. He knows what's going to happen doesn't necessarily mean he he caused it to happen. God knows what you're going to do tomorrow when you get out of bed. It doesn't mean that he's overriding your choice to do what you do tomorrow when you get out of bed. Knowing it is not the same as making it happen. So these people were not forced to murder the Son of God. They were not forced by God to act this way. That means that they are, are still responsible. If they, if they were forced, then how could they be held responsible for what they did? Why would they need to repent? Why would he tell them that you acted in ignorance? If God forced them, he couldn't hold them accountable because he made them do it. They had no choice. But the reality is they still had the free will to do it. God just knew what they would do. And Peter's about to... to call them to repentance. Verses 19 through 21, it says, Repent, therefore, 
and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Instead of telling these people that you're going to get what you deserve, Peter calls them to repent. Isn't it amazing that even the ones that had Jesus killed had the opportunity to have their sins blotted out and be forgiven. Isn't that amazing? I don't care what you've done in your life. Nothing is as bad as murdering the Son of God. If they could be forgiven, if they could repent from their sins and be forgiven, every single person in here can be forgiven. And if these men will repent their sins will be blotted out. In addition, it says that they'll receive times of refreshing in the presence of the Lord. You have to be saved to enter in his presence. Because if you're not saved, if you're not born again, you're not righteous, pure, and holy, when you enter the presence of God, you will die. Because there is no way for darkness to be in the presence of light without being destroyed. But we can be in his presence if we're born again. It says also God will send Jesus back to them. This is referring to when Jesus comes back for the final time, for restoring all, thi- all things. It says, for now, for the time being, heaven must receive him until the time for restoring all things, about which God spoke by mouth of his holy prophets long ago happened. So at one point, Jesus is going to come back, right? He says, he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive for now. So it's at this point, when, when the end of days come, when Jesus returns, he's going to be coming back. And he will be there even for the men and women who had him killed. If they, had, if they will repent. And you can be sure that that one day he will return. And we don't know the day or the hour, but we know that it's going to happen. Because his word says it's going to happen. Amen. And in that moment, the dead will be raised and those who are still alive will be transformed in the blink of an eye from glory to glory. And all of us who have repented from our sins and placed our faith in Jesus will enjoy the restoration that is coming when heaven and earth are made new. Amen. So we continue on in verse 23 through 24. It says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. Peter continues with a quote from Deuteronomy. And this is from 1815. The Lord your God will raise up from you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him. It is to him you shall listen. Now, most Jews believe that Joshua was the prophet that raised up after Moses. And the one that was declared in this passage, but Peter's letting them know that Jesus was the fulfillment. Jesus was the prophet like Moses. Jesus was their Messiah. However, this declaration came with a warning. Those who would not listen would be cut off from God's people. And this is true today. Those of us who who reject the words of Jesus and don't place our faith in him 
for salvation will be eternally cut off from God's people. He says, and Peter says that all the prophets have spoken of this. So all the prophets from, from Samuel through all those who came after him spoke and pointed to these days. Samuel was the one that anointed David as king, and he spoke of the establishment of David's kingdom. So from that prophet on, every prophet has spoken, pointing to Jesus, pointing to the Messiah, pointing to what just happened, pointed to what they were experiencing right at this very moment. And we'll end here on this verse, Acts 3, 25 through 26. He says, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. These people who had Jesus killed were sons of these prophets. And they were partakers in the covenant that said, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And this offspring that is mentioned here is referring to Jesus. In Jesus, all the families of the earth will be blessed. How many know that's good news? Not all the families of the Jews, all the families and all the earth will be blessed. I thank God for that because I'm not a Jew. And I would be missing out if it was only for the Jews. So... Thank God for that. Amen. So God raised up his servant Jesus, and he sent him to the Jews. Right? Verse 26, God raised him to the servant, sent him to you first. You know, they had all the prophets and all the prophecies pointing to Jesus. They should have recognized him. They should have knew who he was. But God sent them, even knowing that he would be rejected, even knowing that he would be crucified. God sent them so they could be blessed by turning every one of them from their wickedness. If they would turn from their wickedness, repent of their sin, and towards Jesus, they would be blessed. Their lives would be turned around. Christ was sent to turn their lives around. And ours too, amen? So if they would repent, they would be saved. And the promise came to them first and then to us. You know, Paul made a, a big ado about what advantages are to being a Jew if it just belongs to everybody, and he, he talks about that. And you're, you're God's chosen people. You got to carry the Ark of the Covenant. You got to have the prophets for God. I mean, there was a lot of benefit and blessing to, to, to being the Jewish people because they were God's chosen people from the beginning. So salvation came to them first with the purpose of turning their lives around. Even Jesus said he was sent to the Jews. But then that promise comes to us, and that promise still stands today. If you will repent from your sin and put your faith in Jesus, then you will be sent. You'll be saved. Amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our heads.